Hi, this is Corey Turner. And along with my wife, Simone, we are the senior pastors of Numa Church. I wanted to thank you for listening to our podcast today. You're about to hear a message from one of our team that we pray builds your faith and empowers you to follow Jesus more closely. Enjoy the message. sound you hear is the sound of bagpipes playing a hymn Amazing Grace. I had an encounter with this hymn that quite surprised me. I was returning to Australia from New Zealand. The airline announced that they were playing the film uh, Amazing Grace, which is really about Wilbur Wilberforce and the end of slavery in England. And I was really interested to see it because I knew it was going to be released very soon. And I watched the film with interest, but what gripped me was at the very end the sound of those bagpipes began to play Amazing Grace and as I was sitting in my seat, I just began to cry. Now, I've never been embarrassed to cry, but when you're in an aeroplane and you suddenly begin to cry, people are going to be asking questions. What do you know that we don't know? And as a result, I was kind of uh, a bit surprised at my emotional reaction and uh, it, it puzzled me. I damped my tears down and when I got home that day, I said to the Lord, what was that about? I heard the sound of those bagpipes. Well, I know that sometimes people say bagpipes will make anybody weep, but the, the reality, well, that's not what it was about. It touched something so deep in my soul. I began to ask some questions. What is it about Amazing Grace? Well, we know this. It's the best known hymn in English literature. It was written by John Newton 250 years ago, and yet a hymn that was written in the 1700s. You could go into any pub in Australia and if you began to sing, especially if you had a, you were a Salvation Army guy and they had a shaking tin, a shaker tin in your hand, you could start singing Amazing Grace and all over that pub, people would start singing with you. You could sing that song or that hymn at a bikey's funeral and people will bow their heads and they'll begin to sing it themselves and wipe tears out of their eyes because they know the words. I can promise you this, you could sing a lot of hymns in a pub and people wouldn't have a clue what you're on about. Perhaps they'd probably throw things at you. But here is a, is a hymn written in the 1700s, and no matter who records it, it could be recorded by a, a bagpipes a group, it could be written, recorded by a pop star, it goes to the top of the charts over and over again, and I found myself asking the question, why is that so? What is it about this particular hymn that so touches the hearts of people, and it seems like people all over the world, believers and unbelievers, righteous and unrighteous, people that have taken it to their heart, Lord, what is it about that hymn? I'm going to answer that question uh, at the end of our time together. But let me say this to you. Don't leave earth without it. Don't leave earth without amazing grace. And by the way, don't substitute ordinary grace for amazing grace. And that's really what I want to focus on this morning. Because you see, you'll never fully understand amazing grace till you realize how easily the human heart wants to substitute something else. It's called ordinary grace. You see, Jesus knew how easily the human heart, the broken human heart, substitutes ordinary grace for amazing grace. And it was Jesus who unpacked for us the nature of amazing grace. See, if you want to read this story in your Bible later on today, uh, I'll tell you where to find it. The first instance where it's mentioned is in Mark chapter 2, when Jesus was out preaching, and as he passed by 
the taxation booth in Capernaum, a, a young man called Levi, we're also known by Matthew, he was a tax collector and Jesus invited him to join his ministry team and he hung around with Jesus all day and that, later that night went to Matthew's house for dinner. Uh, wasn't late into the night when there's a knock at the door and at the door of the religious police and they want to know something. How come Jesus, you claim to be a holy man serving a holy God and here you are sitting with tax collectors. What's that about? Jesus summarizes his answer in these words, well, where would you send a doctor? You send a doctor to sick people. And as a result, that's pretty much um, what amazing grace is about. It, it's, it's the doctor for sick people. But if you want to hear the whole answer, you've got to go to Luke chapter 15. Because in Luke chapter 15, the Bible now gives you the long version of amazing grace. The Bible says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so now Jesus has got to explain amazing grace because people just don't understand it. The reality is it's not easy for the heart to grip amazing grace. It's a big thing. So Jesus said, clearly you don't understand the heart of God. You may be serving God, but you don't understand his heart. Let me explain to you amazing grace. And so now Jesus will tell three stories. The first one is the story of the lost sheep. He said, imagine you were a shepherd and you had um, 100 sheep. And only 99 came home. Well, I tell you what, if I was a shepherd and I had 100 sheep and 99 came home, I'd reckon that was pretty good. You know, I'd say, uh, yeah, turn on the TV, let's serve up a shepherd's pie and let's watch the news. But that's because, you see, you don't have a heart like God. Because he knows if the 99 fat found ones are home, they're all safe. But what about the one that didn't make it home? He knows he's hanging over hell by a heartbeat. And so if you had a heart like God, you'd say, my priority is not so much for the fat found ones. They can pull out a guitar, you know, appoint a leader and start singing some hymns, look after each other. But there's someone out there that doesn't know the way home. He said that the, the shepherd, the heart of God, would go out looking for that one. He wouldn't stop till he'd found it. He'd put it on his shoulders and carry it home. And here's the shock. There'd be more joy in the shepherd's heart over the one that was lost that he found than over the 99 fat found ones that are all doing okay. And I know that's a shock to us because I always think of myself as part of the fat found ones, I guess. Uh, I, I know Jesus. I found my way home. Jesus said, well, let me tell you another story. Imagine you were a woman and you had 10 coins and you lost one of them. Now, it's an interesting thing to know Jesus never uses a woman as a bad example in the Bible. He knew women had enough problems without him using him as a bad example. And as a result, um, he's about to tell us a story with a woman at the, uh, at the heart of it, a woman who lost something in a house and found it. Now, Jesus knew that if he told a story about a man who lost something in a house and found it, well, no one's going to believe that story because men can't find anything in a house. I don't know how often I've been calling out, hey, I can't find my socks. And I hear Helen say, if I have to come in there, I say, okay, I just had a boy look. I'll have a girl look now. Because see, when girls look for things, they come up with a strategy. And that's exactly what she did. Jesus said, imagine a woman lost something in a house. She wouldn't just look here and there. She'd start moving stuff. She'd come up with a strategy. She'd move everything and sweep from one side of the house to the other until she'd found it. And then She'd call her friends together because there'd be more excitement over finding that lost coin than over the nine that had never been lost. But Jesus said, now let me open up the idea a little further. Let me tell you a story about a father with two sons. 
was a dad with two sons, and the younger boy came to his dad one day and said, Dad, you know, I um, hate to ask you this, Dad, but are you feeling well? Because I was just thinking, if you were to die, you know, I'd get my inheritance and then life could really begin. Well, he didn't put it exactly that way, but that was the, that was the, the point of it. He came to his father and said, Dad, can I have my inheritance? Well, why would you ask for that? I mean, you've got a father, you've, you've got opportunities, and you've got responsibility. Oh, yeah, but I want a real life, Dad. I'll never get a real life till I get out of here and I hit the big town and it's wine, women, and song. And his father could have said to him, son, that's a disgraceful attitude, boxed him around the ears and sent him on his way, but that's not the heart of God. God won't even trap you. He'll never trap you in a relationship. You want to be free? He'll give you freedom. And so the father did the unthinkable. He divided up his inheritance amongst his sons, would have given the elder, elder boy a double portion. The younger boy gets a third of what was his retirement fund because that's what the, the family farm was in those days. No social service backups around here. You're relying on the faithfulness of your kids, the, the honour and, the, and the, uh, the willingness to, to live with you and carry burdens all the days of your life and then it becomes yours. But there's responsibility that goes with that. Well, no, I, I don't want the responsibility. I want the whoopee time, baby. And so his father allows him to have his third and he, he, takes, he takes his dad's retirement fund, he hits the road and off to the big town and there, wine, women and song and it's whoopee time. Right up to the time the global financial crisis hits and before you know it, he's on hard times. I tell you what, the Pharisees would have loved the story up to that point. <laughs> That's exactly what ought to happen to a young man who treats his father like that. It gets worse. He gets so hungry, he ends up working for a pig farmer. And he gets so hungry, he's sitting in the pig store, he starts thinking to himself, even pig food's starting to look good. They would have loved the story at that point too. But Jesus now begins to unpack the struggle of the human heart. Because it's sitting in that pig sty. The Bible says he came to his senses. What's it going to take for you to come to your senses? What's it going to take for you to come to the point where you one day begin to think, is this supposed the way life is supposed to be? Because it was sitting in that pig pen, the young boy began to realize that he'd made some really bad choices in his life. In fact, the Bible says here, when he came to his senses, he said to himself, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out and I'll go back to my father and this is what I'm going to say. You know, Jesus put these words in his mouth and Jesus reveals how broken people view themselves when they've made bad mistakes. This is his big plan. He says, I know I should, should never have left home and I know I've got a father back home and he's a, he's a decent man uh, and, I've, and I've blown a third of my dad's super fun. So what I'll do is I'll go home and this is my big plan. I'm going to ask God for ordinary grace. I'll ask my father for ordinary grace. This is what ordinary grace sounds like. He says, I'll go home and I'll say to my dad, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Oh, that's amazing. So that's how you thought you got to be a son in the first place. You thought you were a son because you were worthy. Do you realize there's only one son that's ever been worthy to be called the son? And that's not me and it's not you. But this was his plan. I'm no longer worthy. Well, what's your plan, mate? 
I'll say to him, make me like one of your hired servants. Give me a broom and a shovel, Dad. I know I've made some bad mistakes, Dad, but I'm coming home, Dad. Give me a, a broom and a shovel and I'm going to work really hard, Dad. I'm, 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 I know I can never be a son, but, but at least I can be a hired servant and I'll try really hard to demonstrate that I'm worth a second chance at trying really hard. That is not amazing grace. That's ordinary grace. But it's what broken hearts expect. You know, you get what you deserve. You've made some bad mistakes. Well, work it off, mate. Go home and slave your way into your father's good books. Well, he heads home with that miserable hope in his heart. The Bible says on his way home, I guarantee he was thinking, I wonder where dad is. I bet dad's out the back room, he's got a furrowed brow and he's thinking about all the things I've done. And I bet he's got his arms crossed and when I go home he'll be sitting back there in that chair and he'll be upset and angry and I'll have to come in and I'll crawl across the floor and I'll say, oh dad, I've sinned again. <laughs> Heaven against you, dad, and I'm no longer worthy but make me like a hired servant. But his dad wasn't sitting in the back of the lounge room with his arms crossed and his brow furrowed. Jesus said he was standing at the gate looking down the road, wondering if this is the day maybe my boy will come home. Because the Bible says here, while he was yet a long way off, his father saw him. He saw him coming over the horizon. And his dad was looking, saying, is, is that it? Is, is that Al? <laughs> it's Al. The Bible says he ran to him. You know, Eastern gentlemen never ran anywhere. It was totally undignified. But there's a father in heaven that can not only spill water on himself, the father in heaven that's willing to rush down the road in a totally undignified manner. Woo-hoo-hoo! And gather his son to his arms. And the Bible says he threw his arms around him and he starts kissing his piggy son. There is a God in heaven that hugs and kisses people. I know the broken human heart can't even imagine that God could be excited about you, that it would be thrilling to God to meet you face to face and kiss you right in your piggy face. But Jesus says, because there's amazing grace in heaven, not ordinary grace. And there as his father throws his arms around him and was kissing him on the face, the boy starts his little speech, Dad... Dad, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And he starts the miserable speech and his father doesn't even want to hear it. He won't even let him finish it. He cuts off his son and says, that's it. Somebody run and get me the robe that we keep for the, the, the dignitaries that visit. You know that really expensive robe? Go bring me that robe, the tolane. Bring me the tolane uh, because my son's come. I can imagine the servant saying, oh, Dad, I wouldn't be doing that, mate. No, no, you don't understand. He's come straight out of a pigsty. That's the best robe we have. We put that on the prime minister when he comes. Uh, we put it on the priest when he comes. Well, you tell you what, you'll never get the pig smell out of that. I would suggest, Father, we bring the, the, the shearer's dressing gown. That's a pretty good option. The shearer's dressing gown. I don't think you understand. Look at him. His head's bowed low, his mouth's filled with this miserable confession. 
is brokenhearted, then today I will restore his dignity. I want someone to bring to me the tollane. I'll wrap it round his shoulders and I'll let him know he's as welcome here as if the priest or the prime minister had come to dinner. I want my son to know his dignity is restored. And someone bring me a ring for his finger. Oh, father, I wouldn't be doing a ring for the finger, mate. No, no, it's a bad idea. Rings, I mean, that's a, that's a sign of authority. He's already blown a 30-year super fund, mate. He's, yeah, I mean, your retirement fund's gone. Wine, women and song, woohoo! He'll... You put a ring on his finger, he'll start signing checks again. I'd hold off on that for a few weeks till we check him out. And don't you, don't you dare. You bring me a ring for his finger because I, I don't have sons with no authority. Today I will restore his authority to him and I want someone to go and bring me a pair of shoes because only slaves walk around here in bare feet. He comes home not as a slave, as a son and somebody kill a fatted calf. Well, Dad, I wouldn't be killing any fatted calf. That's a bad idea. We haven't invented refrigerators yet. You're going to have meat all over the place. I mean, it's only you and Mum and the elder brother. It's only four of you. I would suggest we kill the fatted duck. Kill the fatted duck? Oh, did you think this was just a little meal for me and Mum and the two boys, did you? Oh, no. I want you to kill the fatted calf because I want everyone in this community to be as excited about his homecoming as I am, because today I will not only restore his dignity, I will not only restore his authority, I will, I will restore him to my family, and I will restore him to joy, because it's the joy of the Lord that is our strength. My son is coming home. Let the bells ring out and the banners fly. See, that's amazing grace. The human heart keeps thinking you get what you deserve. God thinks you ought to get what Jesus deserves. And that's partly why this hymn is so powerful. You see, this hymn was not written because John Newton was putting out a new CD and he needed to come up with a couple of extra worship tracks to kind of fill it out. He wrote this song because he knew every word of it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Oh, a wretch. I'd, I wouldn't use that word in a, a song. John, I mean, that's not really nice. A wretch. It's like something stuck in your throat, mate. I mean, that, we, and how about amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a nice guy like me. Oh, no, you see, because I wasn't a nice guy. You see, John Newton went to sea at the age of 11, and he was whatever sailors were in the 1700s, that's what John Newton was. By the age of 17, he was working the triangular route, the slave trade. Load up a ship with Sheffield goods of cloth, of firearms and trinkets, load them up in England, sail down to the West African coast, to the Guinea coast. And their African chiefs would raid inland tribes and mass their slaves or mass their prisoners in stockades on the beach. And the British ships would pull up and they'd trade all the goods in their hold for people. And then manacled and chained and packed in layers like sardines, subject to wet and cold, subject to stifling heat, lying in urine and excrement and vomit, beaten and starved, unimaginable suffering. 
The sick were thrown overboard. The women were raped by the crew. And the survivors were sold in the West Indies. And the ship owners would take that money and then load up their ship with sugar and rum and then sail back to England and cash in the profits. And that was John Newton's life. When he wrote Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, he wasn't kidding. And he wasn't looking for a dramatic word. He was describing the nature of his own life. He ran into problems, as people do in life. For the boy in the story, it was a pigsty and a global financial crisis. For John Newton, it was a journey on a ship that was battered at a storm until it ripped the back end of the ship right off. And for four weeks, they floated only by, by virtue of the fact that the hold was full of beeswax, it kept the ship afloat. And for four weeks of starving and drifting and being pounded by wind and waves under the threat of being thrown overboard by the captain who thought he was Jonah, Newton, along with 11 others of the crew, eventually landed in Ireland. But after four weeks of living on the edge of death, he said this, about this time, I began to know that there is a God that hears and answers prayer. You'll hear it in his hymn. This is not a hymn of dramatics. It's a, it's, a hymn, it's a hymn of his life. He says, through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come. It's grace that brought me safely home. And it's grace, it's grace that brought me safe this far. And it's grace that will lead me home. He had so many instances of, of miraculous deliverance. Half drunk, he nearly fell overboard on one ship and as he was teetering over to a certain death, another drunken sailor reached out and grabbed him by the coat and pulled him back. There was a time in a storm that he went out of a hatch to go on deck and the captain called him back, he said, go bring me a knife. The next man stood up, took his place and was immediately swept overboard to his death. There was a time that he was in a longboat about to row away and get some things and the captain called him out and another man took his place and as he rowed away, he fell through the bottom of a rotten longboat and perished. He knew that over and over again he could have entered eternity without amazing grace. At the age of 82 years old, Newton wrote these words. He said, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great saviour. He died at the age of 82 in the year 1807, and on his tombstone, these words are written, John Newton Clark, once an infidel, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. He was a vile man as a sailor. And in the movie, he says these words, I live with 20,000 ghosts. He was a man who knew that he had never deserved amazing grace. And yet he had been a recipient. Why is it that this song has endured for more than 250 years? Because it came out of an experience of amazing grace. But not only that, there's something else about this hymn that grips people. It's the tune. It's an interesting thing. Where did the tune come from? 
Well, there are those who, as they listen to this tune, understand what they're listening to. You see, what you're hearing in this tune is a hymn written to the slave scale. It sounds like a West African sorrow chant. And it may well be that the first time that this hymn was ever heard by John Newton, that the, the tune was heard, was drifting up from the suffering in a slave ship as slaves below him groaned their way through a West African sorrow chant. West African sorrow chant, the sound of suffering. You mix those two things together and you have amazing grace. You see, the sound of the most profound suffering you would ever hear emanated out of the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that Jesus Christ was betrayed. The Bible says that he groaned his way through that night in prayer, suffered his way through a night of prayer. Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And the Bible says he sweat like great drops of blood. You mix together the truth of amazing grace with the sound of suffering, and you have a hymn, a slave melody, added to this amazing truth. And God's spirit is so willing to testify to its reality. Do you know why um, this hymn touches people so profoundly? It's not just the words, it's the sound of suffering. You see, at the deep core of the human heart, there's a longing to go home. There's a cry in the heart for total forgiveness. But the broken human heart finds it so hard to believe. So hard to believe that there could be total, complete, absolute forgiveness. It's hard to believe that after what I've done, I could have my dignity restored. It's hard to believe that there could be a heart in heaven that could hug and kiss a piggy person like me. And yet you take the truth of amazing grace and you mix it with the sound of suffering. And what you have is a hymn that you can sing in a pub and people start wiping away their tears. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But now I'm found. 
Nothing your heart needs more than to know that the grace of God is amazing. You see, we so easily substitute ordinary grace. Oh, God, I know I'm, I've, I've done terrible things and I'll never be worthy not, not to be called your son. Uh, but, Lord, you, d- d- let me try harder next time. Let, let, let me just, just have a crack at it, Lord. I, I promise you I'll be, I'll be so much more diligent than that. I'm doing it, Lord. I'm doing it. And even in churches all over the world, the broken human heart can hear amazing grace and it never lands because we substitute for an ordinary grace and Jesus didn't die for ordinary grace. He died for amazing grace. The great passion of God is to restore to you your dignity. He will clothe you with the righteousness of Christ. He will cause you in heaven's eyes to be as profoundly dignified as Jesus Christ himself, the righteousness of God that comes by faith. He will restore to you your dignity and to your authority. He has a ring for your finger. He doesn't have sons and daughters with no authority. He'll put shoes on your feet and he'll fill your heart with joy because amazing grace is what your heart needs And amazing grace is what Jesus Christ died to deliver. And amazing grace is what the Holy Spirit is willing to testify to. Where are you today? Where does this message find you? Are you in Canterbury today? Lying in a sickbed somewhere? knowing that your life is drawing near to its end. You know what you need is amazing grace. It's such a struggle to receive amazing grace and to believe it that even the great Corrie ten Boom in the last hours of her life began to feel those tremblings of fear. I'm going to meet God soon. What will he think of me? Billy Graham flew to her bedside to remind her Jesus died for amazing grace and comfort her heart. Is that where you are today? Are you lying in a bed somewhere and you know that you don't have that much longer? The Son of God died to bring to you amazing grace. Where are you today? A marriage on the edge of destruction, wrestling with addictions, made a lot of bad mistakes. You feel like life can never work again. You've dishonored yourself. Or maybe you're just an ordinary garden variety sinner. You know, the lettuce and tomato kind. Just an ordinary, broken sinner. Nothing spectacular to report, just lots of little sin. Every heart needs amazing grace. And today, I would just love to lead you to a place where you could receive it. Because all it really requires is an act of humility. Along with John Newton, that you could say, I came to believe about that time that there is a God who hears and answers prayer. Would you hear his prayer uttered through my lips today? 
no matter where you are. Would you bow your head with me? Because amazing grace requires humility. Don't go to God and say, I'll never be worthy to be called your child. Just give me a chance to try harder. Don't go expecting ordinary grace. Listen to the sounds of suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane and know that someone has borne your griefs and carried your sorrows. Know that by asking, you will receive. Jesus said it. Let's do it together. Is that you? Thank you for joining us for this message today. We don't assume that every person listening has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so today, we invite you to begin following Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The Bible teaches that every one of us has been created for a relationship with God. Sin has separated us from that relationship, but God loved us so much that He gave us His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, died, and rose again, conquering sin, Satan, and death itself. If we believe in our hearts that God has raised Jesus from the dead and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. So if you are ready to pray in faith, turning away from your sin and believing in Jesus for your salvation, please pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God and I ask you to forgive me and cleanse my heart from all of my sin. I receive by faith the free gift of eternal life, and I ask that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit. I thank you that I am born again as a child of God and that you have made me a new creation in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you have prayed that prayer for the first time, we would love to know and help connect you to a local church in your area. You can contact us on our website, numa.church. Thank you for listening.